Flannan Isles Lighthouse is a lighthouse near the highest point on Eileen Moor, one of the seven islets known to locals as the Seven Hunters, just northwest of Scotland. The lighthouse has a height of 23 meter, which was designed by David Allen Stevenson for the Northern Lighthouse Board, NLB. Construction began in 1895 and ended in 1899, which was undertaken by George Lawson of Rutherglen at a cost of £6,914, equivalent to £784,000 in 2019, inclusive of the building of the landing places, stairs, railway tracks, and so on. The construction of the lighthouse was initially scheduled to be finished in two years, but due to the intense weather and the rough seas around the Flannan, it had delayed construction considerably. It had taken another two years for the construction to be completed. All of the materials used had to be hauled up the 45-meter cliffs directly from supply boats. A further 3,526 pounds was spent on the shore station at Breezeclit on the Isle of Lewis. Despite frantic work throughout summer and autumn of 1899, the 140,000-candle power lamp which stood 275 feet above sea level was finally visible up to 24 miles away sometime around the first week of December 1899. The purpose of the railway tracks was to facilitate the transport of provisions for the keepers and fuel for the light up the steep gradients from the landing places by using a cable-hauled railway. This was powered by a small steam engine in a shed adjoining the lighthouse. A track descended from the lighthouse in a westerly direction and then curved round to the south. In the approximate center of the island, it forked by means of a set of hand-operated points dubbed as Clapham Junction. One branch continued in its curvature to head eastwards to the east landing place on the southeast corner of the island, thus forming a half circle, whilst the other, slightly shorter, branch curved back to the west to serve the west landing situated in a small inlet on the island's south coast. The final approaches to the landing stages were extremely steep. The cable was guided round the curves by pulleys set between the rails, a line of posts set outside the inner rail preventing it from going too far astray should it jump off the pulleys. The cargo was carried in a small four-wheeled bogey. The Disappearances in 1900 On the foggy morning of 15th December 1900, the steamer Arctur from Philadelphia was on a passage to Leith. A few days after their departure, they passed by the seven islets known to locals as the Seven Hunters. Stood on top of the highest peak of the biggest island of them all is a lighthouse. However, there was no light shining from its lantern. It seems as though it was abandoned, or rather, no one is on duty on that day. When the steamer Arctur finally reached the shore of Leith on the 18th, the sighting was passed onto the northern lighthouse board. Thus, a relief vessel called Hesperus was dispatched. The initial plan was to depart as early as possible, but due to the adverse weather, they had to postpone their journey. It was only on the noon of the 26th 
more than a week after the lighthouse was first seen to be inactive, that the relief vessel finally reached the shore of Eileen Moore. The lighthouse was manned by three men, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur, with a rotating fourth man spending time on shore. Jim Harvey, who was the captain of the relief vessel, stated that when he and his crew were approaching the shore of the island on the noon of 26 December, they found that the flagstaff had no flag, and all of the provision boxes were left on the landing stage for restocking. They attempted to inform the lighthouse keeper of their arrival by blowing the ship's whistle and firing a flare. But despite their effort, no one was there to welcome them ashore. At first, they thought the men weren't aware of their arrival, which was understandable considering that they were a week late. When they finally docked, Joseph Moore, the relief keeper, was initially told to inspect the lighthouse by himself. As Moore climbed the hill of the island, each step he took felt heavy. A sense of unease increasingly washed over him the closer he gets to the entrance. Something was not right. Aside from the howling ocean wind and the crashing of the waves, the island was silent. When he got to the entrance of the lighthouse, he noticed that the door was unlocked. As he entered the compound, he noticed how lifeless it was. Not a single lighthouse keeper was in sight. Looking at the scene, for some reason, it's as if the men were in a hurry and left the lighthouse and has abandoned it ever since. The lamps were unlit, food was still on the table, a chair was overturned, the beds unmade, and all the clocks had stopped. Judging from the inactivity of all the clocks in the area, it's safe to say that they were gone for several days now. After witnessing the scene of the lighthouse, Moore returned and retrieved Hesperus's second mate, McCormack, who was a seaman for a further investigation. After a more thorough search, that found that the lamps had been cleaned and refilled. A set of oilskins was found, suggesting that one of the keepers had left the lighthouse without them. Moore and McCormack scoured through every corner of the island, but found no sign of any of the keepers, neither inside of the lighthouse nor anywhere on the island. After scouring every corner of the island, they went back and reported to Captain Harvey what they have found. There was only two considerable evidence which indicates that something had happened to the man. The first evidence was the lighthouse's logbook, which contains the description of the tasks that were carried out on each day. However, the final three entries of the logbook were out of the ordinary. The first one was the entry dated December 12th by Thomas Marshall describing the abnormal storm that had struck the island on that very day. The storm was so strong that it had the men on their knees, praying for their lives. Marshall wrote, Severe winds, the likes of which I've never seen before in 20 years. He later wrote that Ducat, the oldest man in their crew, had been quiet while the young MacArthur was in tears. MacArthur had a reputation as a tough and experienced seafarer 
which further shows the colossal scale of the storm that had struck the island on that day. The final log entry was made on the 15th December. It simply read, Storm ended. Sea calm. God is over all. What do they mean by God is over all? The second evidence was the damages that were found on the West Landing. A box at 33 meters above sea level had been broken and its contents were strewn about. Iron railings were bent over. The iron railway by the path was wrenched out of its concrete. And a rock, weighing more than a ton, had been displaced. On top of the cliff, at more than 60 meters above sea level, the turf had been ripped away as far as 10 meters from the cliff edge. Under the order of Captain Harvey, James Moore was left at Eileen Moore to carry out his duty of relighting the lamp and, if possible, to find the whereabouts of the three lighthouse keepers. He was accompanied with three volunteers which were Alan McDonald, the boymaster, and Seaman Campbell and Lamont. Harvey then went to Breezecleet in Lewis, the site of the nearest telegraph station, and sent an urgent telegram to his employer. The secretary of the Northern Lighthouse Board in Edinburgh stated 26 December 1900, stating, A dreadful accident has happened at the Flannans. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall and MacArthur, have disappeared from the island. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane. When returning to the mainland, many of the locals speculated what happened to the men. Some came up with possible logical explanations such as drowning. Others believed that they were taken by supernatural forces, living on the island and were spirited away to the other world. More than 10 years later, the events were still being commemorated and elaborated on. The 1912 Ballad Flannan Isle by Wilfred Wilson Gibson refers erroneously to an overturned chair and uneaten meal laid out on the table, indicating that the keepers had been suddenly disturbed. Yet, as we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread for dinner, meat and cheese and bread, but all untouched and no one there, as though when they sat down to eat, ere they could even taste, alarm had come and they in haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for at the table had a chair, they tumbled on the floor. Who were they? Since the lighthouse was only constructed about a year before their disappearance, and the island is considered to be one of the most exposed of all NLB stations, the lighthouse had to be manned by experts. James Ducott, 43, is the most familiar with the environment and the unpredictable nature of the sea at Eileen Moor, as he was selected to maintain the light whilst the lighthouse was still under construction. On top of that, he has over two decades worth of experience when it comes to becoming a lighthouse keeper. His companions were the second assistant keeper, Thomas Marshall, who was 28 and unmarried, and an occasional keeper named Donald MacArthur, 40, a married man from Breezecleet. MacArthur was an old soldier and was standing in for the fortunate William Ross, the first assistant keeper 
who has an extended sick leave. The fact that the keepers have extensive experience in the lighthouse service makes it more alarming as to what had happened on that tragic day. History Before we dive into the speculations and theories regarding as to what had happened to the men, we have to understand the purpose of a lighthouse and why it is so important. In the past, when navigating in the sea, people looked for a pile of rocks that had been left there. These were the first day marks. But how could they find their way home at night? Since much of the shoreline looked very similar, friends had to light a bonfire on a high point to guide them to the right landing area. Still, later, they used a pole or a tripod to hang a metal basket containing a fire as a method of signaling. Our first lighthouses were actually given to us by nature herself. Sailors sometimes used landmarks such as glowing volcanoes to guide them. Although this method is reliable, there is a problem. In the ancient world, trading ships were eventually built enabling navigators to sail long distances to buy and sell goods. In the days of wooden ships with sails, the wind and waves could easily push them. This could lead to disasters where they can be pushed against rocks and wreck them. And so, the need for lighthouses as warning signals arose. Not only is a lighthouse used as a landmark, but it is also used as a warning, located at an important or dangerous place. This is why the steamer Arctur that was on a passage to Leith had to pass a message about the inactivity of the lighthouse to the NLB, as it is vital for the safety of other ships. Speculations and Conjecture So what happened to the man on that very day? Many theories were brought up by the locals, ranging from the logical to the supernatural. We will cover each theory one by one in more detail. The first theory was that the men were kidnapped by otherworldly beings. This ranged from giant birds, aliens, and fairies or the little folk of Eileen Moore. This theory may seem far-fetched, especially in our world today, but this made sense back in the 1900s. To add on to this, we need to understand the history of the island. The islands are called Flannan Island in honor of the priest that had built a chapel which he and his circle of followers inhabited and worshipped on in the 7th century. Although the island seemed to be the perfect place to establish a congregation, the worshippers believed in the island's supernatural powers. Because of this, St. Flannan and his followers have fled from the island and left the chapel abandoned. It's rumored that the saint, along with his followers, left the island due to supernatural sightings of fairy folk. Because of its eerie reputation, rituals such as circling the church on your knees were adopted by the locals. The only thing the saint and his congregation left behind was his church and a flock of sheep. This explains why some of the locals lean more to the idea that it has to do with the supernatural. Other theories explain that the men were probably either kidnapped by a passing ship or they fell into the ocean while attempting to aid a vessel in distress. The problem with these two theories is the nature of the sea at that time. As described by Moore in the logbook, he said that the island was struck by severe winds. 
Also, the relief vessel Hesperus had to delay their journey a week later due to the rough waves. It is very unlikely that any ship was to pass by during those times in such conditions. The fourth theory is that one of the three keepers went mad and murdered the other two keepers and ran over the edge of the cliff. This is possible, but there are no indications that this was the case, as there's no evidence that a murder weapon was used. Also, if murders did occur on that very day, it didn't explain the damages left on the west landing. The two most likely theories are that the men were blown off of the island. This is either due to strong winds, which was Captain Harvey's speculation when he sent the telegram to the NLB, or they were hit by giant waves. This is the later speculation that was made by the superintendent of the commissioners of Northern Lights himself, Robert Muirhead. Quote, I am of the opinion that the most likely explanation of this disappearance is that they had all gone down on the afternoon of Saturday, 15th December, and a large body of water coming down upon them had swept them away with resistless force. End quote. The theory that the men were hit by strong wind is a probable scenario, as it aligns with the report made by Moore in the logbook. However, this theory has its own problems. High winds wouldn't be able to cause such damages on the west landing. Even if this was the case, the men wouldn't have been blown off of the island as the winds were supposed to come into the island rather than towards the ocean. Muirhead considered and discussed the possibility of the men being blown by the wind. But, as the wind was westerly, if it had caught them, it would, from its direction, have blown them up to the island, and I feel certain that they would have managed to throw themselves down before they had reached the summit or the edge of the island. This leaves us with the last theory, which is that they were swept away by a large wave. The superintendent had the opportunity to examine the island himself, and he found further evidence to support this contention, noting, as pieces of canvas were adhering to the ropes, it was evident that the force of the sea pouring through the railings had torn the lifebuoy off the ropes. Moore added that the iron railings on the path down to the west landing had started from their foundations and broken in several places. This evidence implies that waves at least 110 feet high, created, presumably, by local conditions along the cliffs of Eileen Moore, had smashed into the island during the storms of December. This is the only theory that is able to explain the damages that were struck on the West Landing. Conclusion There are a lot of theories as to the man's disappearances, ranging from the most logical where they had probably been swept away, either by severe winds or a huge wave, to the most questionable, where they were kidnapped by fairy folks. In the end, we will never know what truly happened to the men. To conclude, I will read through the article written by the Times in the 1900s about James Ducat's daughter's last memory of his father's departure to the island. Miss Ducat, now 98, and living in Edinburgh is believed to be the last direct link with the mystery which has passed into legend among the superstitious folk of the Outer Hebrides, which has been immortalized 
in an epic poem by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. Miss Ducat's father, James Ducat, was one of the three keepers of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse, who vanished without a trace on a dark December Saturday in 1900. There have been fantastic tales of madness and murder, but in the end, it is most likely a story of stoicism and beauty, perhaps of heroism, and almost certainly of a merciless sea which played a final cruel trick on the three men. The superintendent, Robert Muirhead, had persuaded Ducat to take on the job as principal when the Flannan Isles light had first been lit a year earlier and had, with a heavy heart, recorded that he had visited the Flannans only a week before the disappearance and that, I have the melancholy recollection that I was the last person to shake hands with them and bid them adieu. Miss Ducat remembers her father's reluctance to go to the Flannans. He said, it was too dangerous that he had a wife and four children depending on him. But Mr. Muirhead persuaded him because he had such faith in him as a good and reliable keeper. The Ducat family lived at Breezecleet, a shore station on the island of Lewis. Miss Ducat clearly remembers the day her father left Breezecleet for the last time. It was a lovely sunny day and my brother Arthur and I were playing in the high-walled gardens. My father came out of the house and picked each of us in his arms and gave us a kiss. Then he walked very quickly away. We ran after him and we called him. He stopped at the road end and waited for us, picked each of us up again and gave us another kiss. I've always wondered if he had some kind of premonition that he would never see us again. Oblivious to the coming tragedy, the Ducats busily prepared for a late Christmas, wrapping presents for their father, due home at the end of the month. We were so excited because there was to be a wedding on the island of Hogmanay, and we children had never been to one. If you like this podcast, make sure to leave a review and share it with your friends. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you'll get notified as soon as there's a new episode. Stay safe and have a great day.